don't have one, um, follow along with me. Lots of quotes and things like that will appear um, on these handouts. Um, and let's, let's get stuck into it. Uh, and my two girls were watching Harry Potter yesterday. And some of you, when I say Harry Potter, your heart starts racing, you love Harry Potter. Some of you have tried to avoid it for 25 years. But even if you've tried to avoid the books and the films, I'm sure you will know how the story begins. The story begins with this boy, Harry, and he's living in a, a really rough situation. He's living with relatives, but they don't really love him or care about him or want him there. His parents have died when he was a baby. Uh, he's treated almost as a slave. He's locked in a cupboard under the stairs and made to work uh, for those uh, people that, that hate him. But then lots of strange things start to happen until he, there's this moment where he's told this mind-blowing truth. You're a wizard, Harry. It's my, it's my best Hagrid impression. Um, and by the end of book one, Harry's life has changed. So he's at Hogwarts. He's almost found a home. It feels like he's found a new family. He knows who he is and some of what he should be doing with his life. And that is Harry Potter. But actually, there's, there's a lot of similar storylines in literature and in films. Uh, a lot of characters who are orphans, so Frodo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, uh, Lyra in His Dark Materials, Peter Pan, is sort of an orphan, Superman, James Bond, Luke Skywalker. And then think about Cinderella. I was thinking about Cinderella this week. Cinderella is unloved. She is lost. She is living in a home, but it's not actually a home. She doesn't belong there. It doesn't feel like home to her. But then she meets the prince. And the prince goes out to find her. And the prince loves her. And the prince takes her in. And the prince gives her a new identity by the end of that story. And who knows exactly why we keep on going back to these storylines in our literature. My guess is that even if the writers don't realize it, what they are doing unconsciously is they are echoing the storyline of the gospel. They're echoing the deepest narrative in the universe. It mirrors what God does for us. And so it cuts right to the heart of our humanity, who we are and what we are longing for. And we're going to see those themes come up in our two doctrines tonight. So let's look at the doc doctrine of adoption first. And the first thing to note is that we are all spiritual orphans. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, it's a very famous passage. It talks about how we are saved by grace, through faith, saved by Jesus in order to get, live good lives. But the start of it says where we have come from. And it describes us using phrases like sons of disobedience, children of wrath. So it's using family language, but it's saying that we are coming uh, from this situation, uh, from this, this, this bad situation. And in John chapter 8, Jesus uses similar language. Jesus describes us as children of the devil. And so in some ways, the Bible says that we are not orphans. We're not orphans. We have parents, but those parents are not the parents we should have. They are evil parents. They are destructive parents. The parent we were supposed to have is God. The God who made us and loves us. And so we are spiritual orphans because we are separated from God. We're all spiritual orphans. Every single person in history by nature is a spiritual orphan. Apart from one person. And that one person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only person who has always had a perfect relationship with God the Father. And even as a child growing up, you see that when Jesus goes to the temple he ends up in the temple and Mary and Joseph find him and he says, I'm, I'm in my father's house. He knows he has that relationship. But the rest of us don't. 
by nature. And God could have just left us like that. But the wonderful storyline of the Bible is that God doesn't. He doesn't leave us like that. And this theme of adoption runs all the way through the Bible. So if you look at Hosea chapter 11, this is how God describes it. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God is using this family language. And he says, Israel is his son. And he draws Israel to himself as his child. But he has to do something in order for that to happen. Because Israel's situation, again, is a really bad situation. They are slaves in Egypt. And so in order for for God to, to claim Israel, to bring Israel into his family, he needs to go out to rescue them. He needs to be like that prince in Cinderella. He needs to go to find them and to rescue them through the plagues, through the Red Sea, and the things we've seen in our morning service. And you see that in earthly adoptions, don't you? That children who are adopted, are not, they're not normally children who are in loving family relationships, in wonderful home lives, with uh, families that can love them and care for them and protect them and give them hope for the future. No, they are like the Israelites. They're in desperate situation. And spiritually, that is the situation that the world is in. That's the situation lots of our friends, our family, neighbors, colleagues are in. They are spiritual orphans. But God chooses to make some people his children. He takes that initiative. And let's look at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is full of wonderful truths. But these verses from verse 14 to 17 are great verses on this theme of adoption. Paul, who's writing it, says this. He says, For those who are led by the spirits of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so Paul says, rather than being, being spiritual orphans, Christians are now children of God. But he also says that we need to see that we are God's children. It's not just that we're brought into God's people, God's household maybe as slaves, we are children. So Paul deliberately contrasts slavery with adoption. And he does exactly the same thing in Galatians 4. My guess is that he does that because he feels like we need to know that. We need to know that because naturally we, we, we drift towards thinking of God as this slave master. And there's a huge difference between the way a master treats a slave and the way a good father treats a child. And I've, I've put boxes there. You might want to note some of these things down. A slave is there to work. A slave is there because they are useful. A slave is there as long as they do a good job and meet the requirements that the master has laid down. Otherwise, the slave will be in serious trouble. A slave might be appreciated, but they have no guarantee of unconditional love day after day. A slave often lives in fear of their master. And so you contrast that with a father, a good father and its child, where the father might have expectations for how it expects the child to live. But the child will always be his child. And that child's status as his child and the love he has for that child doesn't change depending on whether the child ticks the boxes every day and fulfills the contract. That's not how a good father relates to his child. And the child should not be in fear of the father. They should respect him, but should not have this constant fear. 
And the wonderful truth is that as a Christian, God calls you as his child. Whatever you do or don't do doesn't affect your adoption as his child. We're not constantly on show in danger of falling short and being in real trouble. And why is that? It's because of what we looked at last week to do with justification. It's the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection means that we are justified. We're right before God, and it's a legal declaration based on Jesus' righteousness. And again, think about earthly adoption. Earthly adoption is similar, isn't it? So earthly adoption involves a legal change in status. There's a formal process, paperwork is filled out, documents are signed, and then a child legally comes into a family as the son or daughter. And it's the same with our spiritual adoption into God's family, but even more so because it's not, it's not a signature on a form that signs it. It is the cross of Christ. And the paperwork isn't filled out with ink from a pen. It's filled out with the blood of Jesus. And that blood will never fade away. And so if you're a Christian here tonight, you're a child of God. And that is an incredible privilege. And it happens the moment we're saved. Okay, so when we are justified, when we're made right with God, we are also brought into God's family. But I wonder if you've ever thought about this. There is a way that God could have done this, I think, where he could have justified us without adopting us. So we could have been legally declared right with God, not condemned, not guilty anymore, not having to face God's punishment, able to worship God. And those things would have been incredible. We would have had to have said, thank you, God, that is so merciful, so generous of you. But God could have stopped at that point. But he doesn't. He goes to the next stage, which is to adopt us and bring us into his family. Last week, after the Foundations talk, um, we have a little kids' group that meets afterwards to discuss the talk. And uh, we decided to act out a court scene. And we had one of the kids, I think it was Aubrey, dressed as a judge, okay, in robes. He looked very impressive. And... Um, and you know that scene. Okay? You know the court scene. The court scene is, is, is language that is used in the Bible. The young criminal turns up a court. His life is a mess. He has to pay a fine for a crime that he's done. He's definitely done it. He's guilty as anything. He admits it, but he can't pay the fine. He's about to go to prison for a long time. But the judge steps down. And the judge walks over to him. And the judge says, I will pay your fine for you. And that is a helpful picture of justification. The amazing truths we were looking at last week. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. But there's a next part of that scene. It could have stopped there, but the Bible says the judge does something else. The judge steps down, he pays the fine, and then he turns to the young criminal whose life is a mess, and he says, I want you to come home with me. I want you to be part of my family. I want you to live with us, to eat with us. You can have a bedroom with us. We will support you. We'll pay for you to study. You will be like a son to us. And the young criminal joins that family. Doesn't deserve it at all. But he joins that family. Here's what the theologian Jim Packer says. He says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. Justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. And just like that criminal, we receive all the benefits of being a son. So he would receive all the benefits from being in that judge's family, even though we don't deserve it. The Bible says we'll be heirs inheriting from our father like the eldest son in Bible times. But that's such an incredible thing. And you might be sat here tonight going, okay, I can process that. But the Bible says that we, we actually do struggle to understand that. We do struggle to believe that. 
And the work of the Holy Spirit, one of the things he does is that he shows us that it is true. He speaks to us and he confirms to us that it is true. And so back in Romans 8, we're told the Spirit himself testifies with our spirits. We are God's children. And the Spirit allows us to cry, Abba, Father. So Abba, you might know, was this really personal name uh, that was used for fathers in the first century uh, in Palestine. It's an Aramaic word. And it's the kind of word that was very intimate. And the Jews would not have used it for God. But Paul uses it. Paul uses it. Why does Paul use a term that is so intimate to address God as Father? I wonder if it's because he knows, from Mark chapter 14, he knows what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is hours before Jesus' death, and he prays this. Going a little further, he fell to the ground, prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. So why does Paul use this phrase, Abba, and why does he use it in the Aramaic, which is a very strange thing to do? I wonder if Paul and the early church were so struck by Jesus being able to use this really unusual, intimate term for God, the kind of term that a young child would use for its father, they thought, we're going to use exactly the same word, even in the same language. Jesus calls God Father. But Jesus, obviously, is God the Son, so he can call God Father. But Paul also uses it. Paul says we can call God Father and experience God as Father, and that is so remarkable and so against the way we might think that the Spirit's work is to assure us each day that we are God's children. We can call him Father. When you step back and think about it, it is amazing. It's amazing. When you look at who God is in the Bible, when you look at even things we looked at in, the, in, in Hebrews, uh, in, uh, in Exodus, in Hebrews, these things we looked at over the last few weeks, and you step back and you go, gosh, we can call God Father. And uh, John Calvin, who was a, a great uh, reformer, one of the greatest theologians ever, um, he said, of all the titles for God in the Bible, for him, the most special one was Father. I was just amazed by the fact that we could call God Father. But we can only call God the Father because we are adopted and joined to the Son. Because we're adopted and joined to the Son. It's because we come through Jesus. Because of our union with Christ, which we'll look at in a moment. Uh, if you try to get into Buckingham Palace tonight, I wouldn't recommend it. If you thought, oh, I just want to go and see the king, then you would be detained by armed officers. But if you went in tonight with uh, Prince William in his car, you would be allowed in. Because Prince William is the Son. I don't, I don't know if that still applies to Harry. That's a, that's a different question. Um, Jesus gives us that access to God the Father. And something else that's amazing is Jesus is now our brother. He's now our brother. And I remember hearing that for the first time when I was a young Christian. I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. I know all these things about Jesus. Jesus is the king and he's savior and uh, he's Messiah and he's the ruler. He's all these things. But Jesus is my brother but in Hebrews chapter 2, we saw it this morning. It says, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, tonight, if you're a Christian, he looks at you and he says, you're my brother. You're my sister. That's astounding. So Christians have this great privilege of being the children of God. But we do need to just stop and recognize 
Christians have that privilege because they are trusting in Jesus. They're coming through Jesus. So for a lot of people in the world, God is not their father. You sometimes hear that language said of God being the father of everyone. The Bible says, no, actually, the children of God are those who are trusting in Jesus. So what difference should this doctrine make? What, what difference should it make to us tomorrow morning? Here's four quick things. Uh, the first is that it should shape our view of God. Uh, here's, here's Jim Packer again. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and, and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christi- Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. So do you think of God as father? Or do you think of God as this, this distant ruler over there somewhere? It doesn't really like you. Um, I do just want to pause at this point and just to recognize that for some people, their experience of fathers is not that nice. It's not that nice. And you need to, to look again at what the Bible says about God. God is a good father. I realize that that, will, that does make things hard. But looking at the character of God as a good father, is that how you think of God? Number two, it shapes our prayer life. Um, we get to pray like Jesus. So Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. So the disciples say, um, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. And when Jesus is saying that, he's saying, I can pray to my Father, and you can also pray to your Father. We're brothers and sisters, we can pray together. And so when you pray tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, after you've messed up lots tomorrow, I'd encourage you to approach God as Father with confidence. With confidence. He loves to hear you. He loves his children. He wants to hear you speak to him. And even think about your language. Do you use the word Father in your prayers? Uh, sometimes uh, you hear people pray and they pray lots and lots and they pray lots of really good things, but they, they don't use the word Father. They talk about God's um, dear God, but they don't use Father. And actually, I think it's good to use that term, Father. Uh, number three, it shapes our view of the church. Um, if I'm adopted child of God, and you are too, then we're brothers and sisters. And like all families, uh, some of us are really annoying, um, but we have a deep bond. We are not a social club, okay? We are not, we're not just some kind of organization you turn up to on a Sunday. We are family, uh, and number four, briefly, um, it shapes our view of those without parents. So Christians should be on the forefront of helping vulnerable children, children who are being abandoned, children who are maybe orphans. People like George Miller in the 19th century are great examples of that. And it, this kind of doctrine drove him. That's the doctrine of adoption. Uh, let's turn to the doctrine of the union with Christ. Whoop. Which, <laughs> that's like a dividing point. Um, which is very closely connected to the doctrine of adoption. So I don't think you can have one without the other. Um, What is it? When we talk about union with Christ, what is it? It's the truth and the reality that if you are a Christian, you're not just saved by Jesus. You're not just a follower of Jesus Christ. You're actually in Christ and Christ is in you. And the Bible uses that language probably far more than we do. So um, Philippians 1 verse 1, this is how Paul begins his letter. And if you're like me, when you read the beginning of the letters, you skip past it because it's just Bible language for 
dear all, <laughs> or hi everyone. But actually, stop and think about what Paul is saying. Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So when he's saying, he wants to say, to all the Christians in Philippi, but what he actually says is, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And this phrase, in Christ Jesus, is Paul's go-to phrase for Christians. And it's a really strange phrase. It's a really deep phrase. So you might be a follower of a particular musician or a fan of a football player or an author. But this phrase of being in something, in them, is just something on a much deeper level. And Paul uses it all the time. So Paul alone, let alone all the other authors in the New Testament, he uses it 160 times. In Christ, in him. In, a, in Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 14, which is just one really long sentence in Greek, uh, Paul uses that phrase, in Christ or in him, 11 times. So in his head, when he thinks of you as Christians, he is thinking, in Christ. Um, here's what he says in Galatians 2 verse 20. It's a good snapshot of his thinking. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you're a Christian, you are completely joined, completely bonded to Jesus Christ. And I, I spent a while trying to think of an illustration. They were all rubbish. So I've, I've just given up. Um, but partly because you can't explain the mystery and partly because I kept on thinking of things that were bonded together. But after millions of years or after some nuclear weapon or something, they could be broken apart. But with Jesus, our union with Jesus, if you're a Christian, that will never, ever be broken. It is this deep, profound, immovable relationship. Deeper than any other relationship you could ever have. In fact, it's so close that the Bible says, stop talking about two. Stopping, stop talking about Jesus and you. It's just one. You are now just one. Um, and there's a difference between just describing what Jesus does for us, his work for us, and the person of Jesus in us. Um, so here's how we might think about it in the wrong way. We might think, well, Jesus is over there, and Jesus is great. He's great. He deserves worship. He deserves to be thanked. What has he done? He lived a perfect life. He died for me. He rose again. And through that, he has saved me. He's offered me eternal life, which is great. No more suffering, no more pain. It sounds like it's going to be brilliant. I don't have to be punished. And as well as that, he also gives me really wise teachings, and he's a great role model. And so I look at Jesus, and I think, thank you so much, Jesus. And the Bible says all those things are true, except Jesus isn't over there. He is in us. He is in us. This is not just a business relationship. Through the work of the Holy Spirit living in you, Jesus is in you, and you are in Jesus. We are joined together. And this relationship is so close that uh, I was thinking about this this week, that when Jesus speaks to the disciples and he says, uh, I need to leave you, he says this, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send them to you. Jesus says, look, you've walked with me and you've talked with me and you've spent three years with me, but it's better for you that I go because then you will have the Holy Spirit living in you. Jesus says that's even closer. That's an even more um, in, intimate relationship with him. 
And so here is the reality for you as a Christian. Jesus Christ's night is in you, you are in him, he is with you, you are with him, and that is every day, whatever your experience, whatever your feelings about it. And the Bible says that is, that is God's ultimate plan for his people. So Revelation 21, uh, this, this comes up lots in the Bible, but Revelation 21, right at the end says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So Jesus doesn't just give us this this eternal life as a present, as a gift, and then disappears. Eternal life means being with Jesus. The end goal is relationship with God. The incarnation, we looked at a few weeks ago, the aim of the incarnation is that the Son of God came to us so that we could come to God. There are loads of pictures in the Bible showing this unity with Christ. Um, I've put some down there. So marriage is a really intimate one. Uh, Jesus talks about, um, uh, Paul says that, we're, uh, that Jesus is like new clothes that we put on. Um, there's the illustration of, of we are the body. Jesus is the head. You don't need to know very much about anatomy to know that a body can't function without its head. We cannot live without Jesus. And Jesus himself uses this illustration of a vine. I won't go through it now, but it's just saying, um, if you're not connected to the vine, you can't live. Uh, Let me just read one of the verses. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. So it's all this idea of us being in Jesus, Jesus being in us. And if we're not connected, if we're not connected, we don't have life. But here's the question. You might be sat there thinking, I know that, but that isn't my experience some days. Some days I, I don't feel that relationship with Jesus. And I think, I think starting with these truths tonight is really helpful. So I've been reading this book on Union of Christ um, uh, by Rankin Wilborn. It's a great name. And he says, Union with Christ is the doorway to communion with God. Let's try and unpack that. He says, you start with the truths. You start with the reality. And the reality for every single person here tonight is that if you are a Christian, then you are united with Jesus. That does not change. That does not change. But the journey of the Christian is growing more into our identity and living it out more through faith. It's seeing more of it each day and it's enjoying it more. And that is communion with God. Deepening that that enjoyment of our relationship. That's what Paul is praying for them in Ephesians 3. It means investing more more in that relationship as we read God's word, as we pray, as we meet with other Christians, as we follow Jesus' commands. So we have union with Christ all the time. That doesn't change. But we can grow in our communion with God, our enjoyment of knowing him more. And I wonder if if you knew that. I wonder if you knew that is the aim. So the Westminster Catechism, which is kind of summary of Christian beliefs, says man's chief end is to glorify God, to glorify God, but also to enjoy him forever. What's your aim? What is the aim of God's people? What's God's aim? It's that we enjoy him. Let's enjoy that relationship. Uh, Henry Skugel was a man who died at the age of 28. A few months uh, before he died, he wrote this in a letter, and uh, these words then prompted a revival uh, because uh, the Wesleys read it and George Whitfield read it. 
He said, true Christianity is the union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed within us, a divine life. So Schugel says, look, this is what it is. This is what it means to be a Christian. You get to participate in God's life. I think that is going much further than lots of us naturally think. And so we don't talk about this that much anymore. And there's research that shows that actually Christians up until about 200 years ago talked about union with Christ, communion with God, much more than we do now. We don't do it that much anymore. Maybe because it's too hard to talk about. We just want to pin it down and it's mystical and we don't really understand it. But it is a mystery. We just need to step back and just humbly say, wow, I'm just in awe of it. Maybe it's because we're the selfie generation. And actually union with Christ says it's not about me, it's about me being joined to Jesus. Maybe it's because it just feels a bit too much. It's a bit too like, intimate, a bit too relational. But that's the language God's word uses. And we should think about it. I'm going to finish now. We should think about it because it tells us who we are. It tells us that we are united with Christ. Harry finds his true home and his family. Cinderella finds her prince. We have found our identity. Our identity is to be one with Jesus as a child of the Father. That is who he says we are. It tells us our purpose to to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to point others to Jesus. It tells us where we're headed, eternity with Jesus. And it tells us where ultimate joy and life are. I was chatting to Jim Sheet yesterday at the well. He's obviously doing talks on JF. Uh, camp, and he said, he said his big prayer is not that they go away from it knowing more about Jesus. It's not even that they go away from it believing more about Jesus. It's that they go away from it wanting to have a deeper personal relationship with Jesus. And I guess that's, that's my prayer for us all tonight as we leave, that as Christians we would see it's so amazing that God the Father has adopted us and has joined us to his Son through the Spirit. And that although that is our reality every single day, we would want to know Jesus more, know him better. Maybe tonight you just realize there's more to being a Christian. I want to know God better. I want to enjoy him more. And here's where I'm going to end with Paul's statement in Philippians 1, because I think Paul wanted to know God better. He said this, For him, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. That's his summary. My life is about Jesus. And to die is gain because I get to be with him. And that should be our desire and our prayer too. Let me pray for us and I'll hand back to Dave. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am who you say I am. Father, please help us Uh, to believe, help us to see, help us to trust in the things you have said about us if we are Christians. Help us to see that we are your child. You are our loving Heavenly Father and we are united with the Lord Jesus. And help us to to long, please place a desire in our hearts uh, to know you better and to enjoy you better. And thank you so much that we will get to do that for eternity. Father, please, we have the same prayer, the same passion, the same conviction as the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.